It's the 12th of August, and welcome everybody to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest regions. Um, we broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern, 11.30 Central every Wednesday from the first week of May to the first week of September. Um, if you are, oops, excuse me. My name is Katie Kreuzer. I'm with the University of Nebraska, and I'll be one of your hosts today. And my co-host today is Natalie Hoytel of the University of Minnesota, and Mike Rinke from, the, from Michigan State University is our Zoom engineer. Um, Natalie, what are we doing today? All right, so today we are talking to two guests, Ben Phillips from MSU, Michigan State University, and Charlie Rower from the University of Minnesota, and we are talking about chili peppers. Um, so Ben works with commercial field and greenhouse vegetable growers who target fresh wholesale and processing markets um, in the Bay and Thumb regions of Michigan. Um, and Charlie is a research scientist who studies sustainability and productivity of fresh market vegetables. Um, and both uh, Ben and then Charlie and I have been working on some hot pepper projects over the last couple of years. So um, listeners, if you're listening and you have questions, feel free to type those either in the chat box or the Q&A box um, and make sure to upvote your favorites in the Q&A box as we go. And then we'll get to those questions at the end of the show. Sounds great. Well, I think we'll go ahead and get started. Um, while the Great Lakes region is not typically a place where you would imagine a hot pepper industry grows across the region are developing an interest in this crop. Um, ben and Charlie, why do you think we're seeing more interest in hot peppers these days? Uh, this is Charlie. I was, my interest in hot peppers was peaked partly because I live in a small town in Minnesota, uh, 7,000 people or so, and we have three Mexican restaurants. So I was wondering why, how we could get growers to interact more with those restaurants and perhaps get some, um, get some more locally grown ingredients used more locally. Part of it also is the, uh, at least the part of the state we live in, in Southern Minnesota, uh, has seen a pretty big increase in the population of, um, of Hispanic people, uh, mostly working in the, in the meat processing and the vegetable processing industries but a lot of our small towns in this part of the state at least have um, growing Latino populations and um, perhaps getting some more uh, chili production here would be uh, useful specifically for that population. Yeah, similar to similar. I, I feel like just globalization uh, in a large sense has generated an interest both from people who haven't moved uh, and also, I mean, because they get new products at grocery stores that are often like a processed version of something that's hot and spicy. Um, but the, and then watching cooking shows. But then also people who have moved and they've come to a new area and are looking for something that's familiar to them. And in a few cases, have uh, you know asked growers about where what they can grow. Why not this? Can they grow that? Can I get you seed and can you grow it for me? That kind of thing. Um, in, in different ways, it's generated interest in sort of an incremental fashion, I think. And maybe I'll just add on, um, ever since I started my position, Charlie had been kind of nudging me like, like hey, wouldn't it be cool to do a pepper project? Um, so it was kind of in the back of my mind. And then as I started to work with more Latino growers, um, growers that I was working with were expressing interest, especially in small towns, saying like, we're shipping all of our 
produce to the cities. And we really want to find ways to keep what we grow like in rural Minnesota. Um, and so chilies were kind of this interesting crop where, I mean, theoretically they can be dried. We'll talk more about the challenges of that. But it was a way to like kind of tap into some of these restaurants and also potentially have a product that could be dried for season extension. Um, so there's a lot to learn, but that's, I think, another reason why it's kind of exciting to figure out how we grow chilies well in the Midwest. In, this year is not through yet. We're in the middle of this COVID year, right? And um, I think maybe more than other years, but also in previous years, I think people travel through for the food they eat. And I think that can be part of, it's like basically being a tourist without having to travel to try different foods from different places. And I think this year people are doing a lot more home cooking than they may have thought. Definitely. And in, in talking with one particular grower uh, who was going to be involved in this project, I, I was asking what kind of chilies they think they could sell or they, they think they could grow. And they were really interested in Wahio peppers. They said, um, it doesn't matter if they can sell them to restaurants, they can get rid of all of them with their friends and family. Like, so it's, it's, not, just, it's not just selling to restaurants, it's, it's fresh market, keeping it local too. All right, so Charlie and Ben, based on your couple years of growing chilies, um, what are some of the main challenges that you are seeing growing chilies in the Midwest? Uh, I'll, I guess I'll start with that. I think probably the it's the word chili is a pretty big word to describe basically peppers that aren't sweet. Uh, and starting with like a poblano, that's like the lowest of the chilies in terms of heat, all the way up to I don't know what the record holder is right now, but like Scotch bonnet, that kind of thing. They're all called chilies for better or for worse. I think it kind of hinders the sale for some people, for some consumers to call a poblano a chili because they, they might get scared of the fact that maybe it's hot. But anyway, most chilies um, become a chili by name when it's ripe. It's not green anymore. It's not always the case, all right? Some of them are, are green. Like the New Mexican chilies are often sold green and they're chilies and shishitos, same way. But in general, we think of them as ripened. Um, and the time to ripen them tends to be a challenge in a northern climate, especially if they're large fruited. Some of the smaller fruited things like habaneros don't, send, don't tend to be a problem in getting a big yield. I'm sure you'd get more if you were further south, but we get plenty up here and a little goes a long way. Um, and then on top of time, humidity tends to be a problem in the Midwest if you're trying to ripen them. And maybe if you have a goal for drying or some other post-harvest process, the humidity can really mess you up. And there are certain disorders that seem to show up only when ripening uh, that don't happen when you're just going for green. So I think those are my two, my two big factors. What do you think, Charlie? I, I agree completely with the marketing standpoint. I mean, when I, you know, in, the, in our research project, we have extra peppers. And so I offer them to friends and family and everybody. And most of them kind of balk at the word chili. Do you want some chilies? But there are some of them where... Even if you eat it in the right part, there are no hot glands in that part even. You eat it and it tastes like a bell pepper. So yeah, the, the fear from extra spicy food, I think, can hinder some people who might not otherwise buy them. Um, one thing that, so in our, in our production, uh, in our research this year, we're growing a lot of different kinds of chilies. And one thing from a production standpoint that might be difficult if you've never grown a variety before is understanding, um, if you want to pick it green, when is it? what kind of maturity index do you use? It has, it should, it should be the size that is appropriate for its type, 
but you might not necessarily know what that is. And so, for example, I'm growing two different kinds of serranos, and one of them looks like a nice kind of longish serrano, and another one I I just kept waiting for it to get longer, and it turned red because it didn't get longer. It wasn't, you know, within a within a type of pepper, you kind of have to understand what what it's supposed to look like when you're when it's ready to harvest, and that that just takes experience. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. the t- the types are interesting because when you once you get out of, I mean, bells look like bells. I don't think you can even get a hot bell. That'd be pretty wild. That would be punishing to some folks. <laughs> but like outside of bells, everything is just like um, pointy shaped, and but some can be so similar looking, hot and sweet, but they're both pointy shaped. It can be can be hard to market. Um, labeling is very important, and being able to explain. Uh, from a marketing standpoint, why something is different, why you might want this over that, even though they look nearly identical, is really important for peppers. So some of these challenges are definitely geared more towards just consumer education almost. Yeah, I guess as a follow-up, what sort of like physiological issues, disease issues are you seeing? You know, I actually only know one farm that grows chilies in Minnesota that has phytophthora issues. Otherwise, we haven't seen a lot of diseases. It's also not a heavy disease year for a lot of the state here. Um, but I'm seeing a lot of blossom and rot in some of the plots we have. So what other kinds of things um, are you seeing from that person? Um, well, uh, blossom and rot. I did a trial in 2018 with about 12 different varieties of peppers, and most of those were poblanos. And within the poblano uh, grouping, uh, blossom end rot was probably the main cause of any calls that we had, but it wasn't um, massive. Uh, one variety, it, you could definitely tell that certain varieties got it worse. Like one of them was almost 60% blossom end rot. And it was interesting because it was a variety that the company that donated the seed was the most happy about. They really wanted this one in the trial. 60% blossom end rot. Um, or others were closer to 10%. But um, when it, I also did a couple of the longer types like Guajillo and I only got one Guajillo variety in the trial and that one was just riddled with blossom end rot. It's called Durango. Um, it had about 40% blossom end rot, which was not nice. Uh, the other th- issue that I ran into that I had a really hard time figuring out was uh, as the varieties would turn red, and certain varieties had it worse than others, but as they would turn red, certain spots on the fruit would stay green and they would never turn red and they'd become sunken and they could become rotten points uh, later. Not always though. So they were just weird green spots that never really turned into a, the same color red as anything else. And I did a lot of reading about what that could be. And the best I could figure was that it's something called stip disorder and it's much more common in places that grow peppers to a red state and we just don't do that very much in the north so we probably that's probably why we don't see it much or hear about it much but uh, it seems to be weather related and nutrient related kind of reminds me of like yellow shoulders and tomato another really nebulous sort of weather slash nutrient issue and i think that may be something like that that's causing it but that's kind of the main stuff I found going to the red phase of a large pepper. And it seems uh, I, we're also growing Durango this year and it, they're just starting to turn red now. And Blossom Endrod is really starting to show up in, in that. We have one other Guajillo too, that is also seems like it has um, issues with that. So okay. we'll see when the data come out this year, but um, 
it seems like the Guajillo are especially sensitive to that here. Hmm. It didn't seem to stop either. Like sometimes it, you get blossom end rot that ends after like the first set of fruit, but it just kept coming with Durango for me. Yeah. And another issue that Ben brought up earlier was the um, maturity. Some of the varieties are seem like they're very late, especially if you're waiting for them to turn color. They might be too late to be practical. We'll see though. Yeah, we've noticed with the jalapenos, the early jalapeno is the latest jalapeno. So we thought that was kind of fun. What the variety name is called early jalapeno? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's open pollinated. That? It's open pollinated. And I'm wondering if there's just some variation that exists and we have some that are pretty late. Interesting. Does it perform similarly if grown like south? I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, based on the variety trials that you all have been doing, um, are there specific types of peppers that do better in our climates here? And do those varieties match what customers are looking for? The first part of your question is easier to answer. Uh, the varieties that do best here are the ones that are bred for here. That's simple. Um, pretty, pretty straightforward answer. In my trial, I got to use a variety that I don't think ever made it into a commercial seed catalog, but it was bred in Wisconsin by Jim Neenhoos. He gave it a, a silly name, Wisconsin Roaster, but with like a W in it. You get, he pronounces it like a cartoon character every time he says it. Um, but that one did so well, um, really, really well. Um, and it held its fruit in a different place than a regular pabano plant would. So it didn't get as like uh, top heavy and fall over. Um, the only downside I would see, and it kind of goes to your second question, is that it's, it was a hybrid between two major classes of peppers. It was a hybrid between a poblano, one of its parents was a poblano with those dipped in shoulders. Um, and the other parent I thought was a chilaca. I don't remember if it was guajillo or chilaca, but anyways, a different class of pepper altogether. So combined, it was roughly the size of a poblano, nice and fat and kind of flat. And, but the, it didn't have those raised shoulders that you could collect water in. So it's sort of it didn't really, it, you couldn't like sell it in a, in, in call it a poblano and you couldn't really call it the other type either. So it kind of fell in this gray zone that made it hard to, uh, maybe that's why it didn't get picked up. I don't know, but it made it kind of hard to figure out like, what is it a poblano? I mean, you can use it like one, one of its parents is one, but it's not really one, but it grows really well in, in the Midwest because it was bred here and nothing else quite cut the mustard uh, compared to that one. What yeah. was the flavor of that like? Exactly like a poblano. Hmm. It was, it was, it would pass as a bell if you picked it green and then once it turned red, it got sweeter with the really mild heat, really mild. And that's that earthy flavor that poblanos get too. Sounds really good. I, I think from our, from our trial this year, um, one thing we were hoping is that we would get a lot of bacterial diseases on these plants so that we could kind of evaluate which ones might be better because we tend to get a lot of rain where we are, at least in Minnesota. And um, those diseases just really haven't shown up this year. So everything seems to be growing fairly well on average. Um, to, to your second question about which ones might be easiest to market, um, one thing I'm noticing is we have, I think, four different jalapenos. And one of them is called Spicy Slice. And it is long and skinny. And it was, I, I assume it was bred for slicing and pickling. 
which it would be fantastic for. It's just like a long tube of a pepper um, and the yield is pretty good. Uh, two of the other jalapenos that we're growing, one, Natalie, do you remember the number? It's PS114 something something. It's a very long number. Um, that makes huge fruit and it, it seemed to yield really well so far. Um, wow. The, the, uh, the poblanos we're growing are um, Vencedor and Sargento, and they're both growing pretty well. Uh, by the end of the year, we'll have data on which ones tend to grow better, but they're similar in growth. Um, we're growing a Chile de Arbol that is, the, the plants itself seem to be growing pretty well, but they seem pretty late. Um, I don't know if they're going to turn red in time, but we'll see. Uh, and that, oh, and uh, the Serranos that I mentioned, we have, they're, they're growing pretty well, both of them. We have an open pollinated one and a hybrid, and they're both growing. Um, they're, they seem very prolific. How many On the consumer side, I've been kind of excited to see like, that there are markets for all these different types of chilies, but they're different. Um, so like the poblanos do really well at farmer's markets. Um, and like they're ripe right now. It's a really good time for them. Um, like red eating ripe? Them green and stuffing them. What was that? I was wondering if you meant red ripe or they're like at the green stage, ripe. No, they're green, but that's how they, I think that's how people mostly want them mm -hmm. for stuffing. Um, the, the serranos and jalapenos are being bought by restaurants for salsas. And then um, some of the growers we're working with are really excited about like exploring markets for chili flakes. Uh, if you've ever been to Trader Joe's and seen, they have like these ghost pepper, like standard spice jar container mm -hmm. for like six or $7. And so I think they're really excited to see like, can we make a local market for this? And that's more like the cayenne peppers, um, potentially the chili de apple if it ever ripens. Yeah. Yeah, when it, that second question you asked about doesn't match what the customers want. It's super dependent on your customer. If if you if as a marketer you're trying to hit ethnic markets, then you need to be really observant about you know the geography that that they're used to or what they would desire in a pepper because different different cultures sort of kind of owned peppers from the 1500s until now. I mean that the 1500s is when they kind of all like got spread out all over the world, and then each part of the world sort of then developed peppers for their own purposes and they're a little different and they like different aspects of them. So you need to be really cognizant of that. I've mostly worked with Mexican peppers because that's what a client was interested in and in poblanos in particular, which is a tough one because of how big they are and how long it takes for them to ripen. We didn't pick any of them green for this trial because we simply wanted to know how many red ones can you get. And I figured if you pick green ones, if you're tempted to pick green ones because that market exists, then you're automatically going to limit how many will make it to a red stage. So I didn't pick anything until they were red. And on the whole, on average, across all the plots, there was less than two red fruit per plant, which doesn't seem like a fantastic yield. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Wisconsin roaster had double that, that were red. It had about four ripe fruit per plant. And then when you get into the smaller ones, like the ahi peppers, which are more of a South American specialty, uh, they're smaller, kind of like a habanero. When we had like 36 red fruit per, or ripe fruit per plant, mm -hmm. that becomes, I think, a little better. Um, it By weight, it doesn't seem to make much of a difference, but by number, it's a big difference. Um, and a little goes a long way if you're looking to go to a process like making chili flakes or sauce or something like that. To take that to an added value stage, I think would be easier than something like a poblano, where the added value part of poblano is like, 
a sauce with tons of other ingredients and you need a lot of poblanos to do it. And we don't really have the ability to grow a ton of them in a red stage. So we're kind of getting into like, what is the future of chilies in the Midwest? What are, what chilies can work here? Um, One of the things I wanted to ask about that we may not have answers to, I know Charlie and I have not been super successful in this yet, Uh, but I think drying peppers is something that is potentially really important. Like some of these peppers can definitely be sold to fresh markets, um, but dried peppers either just to sell them dried or for chili flakes, um, I think are also a potential market. And I know Ben, you've done some work with this. So I was hoping we could just touch on a little bit, like what are the different systems that we've tried? What's worked? What has sort of worked (laughs) that could potentially work with adaptation? It sounds like you two have have really laid out uh, this as a primary function of the work you're doing. And you've got some many more types of drying systems than I tried. You want to start and maybe I can fill in with whatever is left that I tried? Sure. So part of what we were thinking is that some growers don't necessarily have the the capacity to dry uh, in the field using electricity. So we, we've built a couple of um, passive drying systems, uh, they have, it's kind of like a greenhouse glazing on the top, and then a couple inches below that is a piece of sheet metal. And then the peppers exist on trays immediately below that. So the metal gets really hot during the day. It can get up to 200 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. And the peppers right below that, they're not exposed to direct sun, so they don't tend to um, bleach or change color as much. Um, the And then the drying trays that the peppers are on are screens, and there's air airflow as possible below the screen. So we have one of those in a high tunnel uh, so that in theory it doesn't get as cold at night. Uh, And one of those is outside the high tunnel. Um, Those things are not effective with fresh peppers. We've tried some jalapenos in there and a week later it's gone from you know 92% moisture down to 87% or something like that. It's that's not going to be effective. We have a, a small dehydration oven. It's basically a food dehydrator, and that works fairly well, um, but space is limited in that, uh, and it uses electricity, but not a whole lot of electricity. Um, one thing that, that might be useful is to, well, getting the first moisture out of the pepper is the hardest part, getting the first half of the moisture gone. So it might be effective to you know, use electricity or, or some means to dry the peppers um, to get some of the first moisture out and then put them in a passive system for a longer time or hang them up or something to, uh, to allow them to dry. But as Ben mentioned before, um, humidity is a big problem in our region and pretty much every night our temperature gets down to the dew point or very close to the dew point. So that slows a lot of what's possible in drying. And we're also looking at smoking too. I think that might be a value-added thing that would be uh, unique and useful for peppers. Uh, but again, the smoking systems that we've tried don't, you know, within a day, they don't eliminate much of the moisture. It does add smoky flavor, but it's not, it's not enough to dry the peppers much. So it'll have to be incorporated into some kind of system with uh, electric heat, I'm, I'm guessing. So the smoking systems that you have been using have just been uh, heated by whatever's creating the smoke, like the wood or whatever? Well, one of them is, it's a, we got plans online for what's called an ugly drum smoker. And it's basically a a steel drum and we modified it to have multiple levels so that you could uh, stack some 
peppers in there. And that's, that's wood heated. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's harder to control the temperature, but it's, uh, it was fairly inexpensive, about $300, I think. Um, the other system we have was purchased commercially and that is an electric smoker. And, uh, so yeah, it's, it's heated by electricity and the smoke is provided by, um, proprietary pellets of wood that only fit in that kind of smoker, which is a disadvantage. It takes electricity and you have to buy the specific pellets, but uh, temperature control is a lot easier in that one. Okay. Hmm. And I think the growers that we are working with are on a much smaller scale than Michigan growers or growers in other parts of the Midwest um, and land access is an issue. Um, and so that's why we were kind of focusing on these really small kind of DIY systems that like if you couldn't grow where you're growing again next year, you could easily pack up and move them. Um, so Ben, I think your trials were probably a little bit more focused on like much more large scale production of chilies. Uh, only if, only if large scale people want to do it. I didn't, I wasn't targeting that audience necessarily. Okay. I just wanted to see what, how many red peppers we'd get out of poblanos and then see if we could dry them. Uh, the person who wanted to know about drying them was a, a sauce maker who just needed red peppers and she was already getting them dried. And so she just thought, well, why don't we dry them so we can, it's the same process for me as it would be if I got the Mexican imported ones. So we took it. Uh, yeah, we did a couple of passive things. None of them worked a uh, huge, massive loss and rot and all that. Um, the only thing that did was bringing them to this apple orchard nearby who uh, there's a guy who dries app for apple chips he slices and dries for apple chips and that in Michigan that requires a food safety it requires an inspection um, and so so would drying peppers and so it worked out um, he uses a machine he got them from a local college cafeteria it's they're on wheels they're about the size of a refrigerator and they've got these rack holders and all they he he said it was for their banquet uh, it was for banquets where they needed to keep plates warm so they put the food on the plates, put the plates on trays, put the trays in these machines, and it just keeps them warm. All he was doing was cranking it up to a lot higher temperature, and that would dry the peppers in 24 hours. And it costs about um, $7.20 to do that. Um, so that worked out pretty well. Um, but the cost of growing the peppers and getting a, a high quantity of peppers is really going to be the, the part that would make it hard to compete with what's already locally available as a dried pepper because the folks who do that tend to buy in bulk and then repackage into one pound bags. All we figured is that if you did dry your own peppers here, um, with just the cost of drying them alone, not including the production costs, uh, you could probably really only compete with online retailers who were selling pre-bagged one pound bags of dried peppers. Um, so that was about as competitive as it could get. Um, but I think that could, the cost could come down if you can find heat that's cheap and wasted in any other process. And I think that's what you guys were looking at. I was thinking, I was talking to some field crop growers this week who dry grain uh, fairly regularly with these huge machines. And I was wondering if there are ways to like build little bypasses that just like blast heat off to this little chamber off to the side. And all you have to do is bring some peppers over and just blam them, blam them. They're dry while they're already drying their grain, things like that. I feel like there's opportunities there that might, for a small grower, it might be an interesting way to do it. Um, ben, when you say the, a food inspection is needed for drying the peppers, is that whole peppers or is that sliced peppers? 
hole uh, from what I've been told. Uh, it's because the state, the, the loose definition that the food inspector used with me was that if you change the state of the food such that it can't go back, then it's an inspectable thing. So that is worth checking on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, it might, it's probably worth a checking. regulator, but my understanding yeah. in Minnesota is that it's considered a product of the farm unless you're adding things to it like salts or whatever that's Got not you. from the farm. Um, and so you don't need a commercial license necessarily. Yeah, we were talking, I was talking to, into. I was talking to Julie Dawson in Wisconsin and it sounds like Wisconsin's similar to Michigan that way. And that a way to, um, to perhaps advance some of these peppers uh, in the marketplace would be for uh, trainings and education to chefs and restaurants, which might already well, they would already have food inspections and to make this a part of something they do might be one way to make more dried peppers. But I think the reason you dry pepper is to make it shelf stable. So if you do, if you have the supply that you need fresh, you don't really have to do that. So yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I think Nebraska's in the same boat as Minnesota. Drying is not considered altering a food product. Okay. So just one really quick follow-up I wanted to ask um, if folks who listen to this are interested in growing peppers and they want to see the results of trials. Um, this is our first year, so we don't have it published yet. But Ben, are you posting that like in the Great Lakes variety trial reports or where can people access that information? Yeah, I put everything related to the, the, the yield trial as a report in the Midwest vegetable trial reports. And I did a separate report that was just on the economics of drying them in also in the Midwest vegetable trials reports. So I think it might be split between two years. And then I did a third evaluation um, where my, my collaborator made sauces out of the peppers that we dried and we did like a taste test. And that is just available on the MSU extension website. You may have to look for it a little bit, but we just wanted to see if the flavors were comparable with the imported Mexican stuff, and they were. So it's not like we grow an inferior pepper. Um, if we can get it to that state, it's it's competes just fine with what you can import flavor-wise. All right, and that that's probably where we will put our stuff to, um, yeah, for future reference. Great. So maybe with that, um, we can wrap up this part of the interview and move into Q and A. Um, so Charlie and Ben, thank you for joining us this week. And Katie, can you introduce what's coming up next week? Yeah, on tap for next week is The World Without Lures Bon. And I hope I am not butchering that. Um, same place, same time. Email any burning questions along with your phone number to Great Lakes Veg, the letter W, the letter G, at gmail.com. And this production is supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. Um, for those of you joining us online um, on Zoom, you have three options for participating live in the Q&A portion. Um, the first way is to put questions in the Q&A box. And you can also upvote someone else's question if you want to put that one to the top of the list for discussion. Um, the chat box should be used for comments so we don't lose track of the questions coming in. Finally, if you'd like to speak up, you can raise your hand and we can unmute you to speak together. And we will handle as many of the online upvoted questions as we can before we move to the phones. 
Um, and if you are dialing in from a telephone, you can raise your hand by pushing star nine. Right. So the first question we have is off of the chili pepper topic. Is there a sweet bell pepper variety that is more tolerant to bacterial spots? So I'll just say, I saw that question come in earlier and I just pulled up the Cornell resistant varieties page. Um, and there are quite a few in there. There are different strains of bacterial spot. So that's important to be aware of. Um, if you're having bacterial spot issues, you probably want to send that to a disease clinic to know which strain it is so that you can get the right resistance. Um, but if you just look up like Cornell resistant varieties, they have really nice spreadsheets. Um, for pretty much every vegetable crop showing resistance to different issues. Um, and it's not always exactly perfect. I've noticed a couple of errors in it, but for the most part, it is accurate and very helpful. You know, if the rest of you have anything to add to that. That's a really cool resource. Basically, one person goes through every seed catalog available in Northeast United States and Midwest catalogs every variety and what it's being marketed to be resistant to. That's a big work. It's a big job. It's pretty cool. I, I really appreciate it too, but we should emphasize that it's not, nobody has tested all of these independently. That's right. Resistance. I would say if you are going to grow like a lot of these, I mean, if it's just a row or two, like go with it. If you're going to plant acres and acres of something, it's often worth calling the breeder. Um, I know that I've done that. Like there's a pumpkin on there that's listed as being phytophthora resistant and we reached out to the breeder and they were like, Oh no, it's not actually. Um, mm. So that's kind of a, I don't know. It's a, a second step of verification. Um, if there's something that you're like really, really having problems with that you really need to make sure you're getting resistance. And sometimes there is no. Resistance. We were supposed to start a sweet bell pepper trial this summer and everything got delayed with the pandemic. So next two years, we'll see what we can work on. But I know bacterial spot is um, a major concern among the growers, especially in eastern Nebraska. So hopefully see some data in the next couple of years from that. All right. So there are no other questions. I, I actually have a question in the meantime, while people think of them. Um, so this is a debate that we've been having. Um, can't do peppers. So the question is, if you plant a sweeter variety, say you plant um, like an ancho chile next to a really, really hot pepper. Growers say that if you plant them next to each other, the sweet pepper will be hot. Um, and I know like Charlie, you've sent me some papers showing like why that's not true. Like that the capsaicin content is like entirely maternal, but we do see it happen in the field. And so I would love to just like <laughs> hear your thoughts about like what's going on there. You, you say you see that happen in the field. You've, you've, you've noticed it, you've tested it. So I personally have not been out like tasting peppers, but all of the growers that we're working with are saying like, we see this happen all the time. And to the extent that we actually separated the trials. So like rather than just mixing everything together and like totally randomized block design, we have like a field of just jalapenos where they're mixed up in like a separate design. And then we have the anchos in another area. So I was just out harvesting stuff yesterday thinking about this. Um, I think it would be a great demonstration to plant a bell pepper, um, a, a whole bunch of bell peppers at varying distances from some really, really hot pepper. And 
um, just asking people to rank how hot the bell peppers are because I'm sure that it would come out the peppers that were adjacent to those really hot peppers are no hotter than those that are distant from that really hot habanero. That, that has to be. I, I can't think of a scientific explanation how that would happen, how the hotness could transfer in the same season from one plant to another. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about cross-pollination and about what it will do in the same season. The only um, crops that I'm aware of where, where you can notice a difference in the first season are, is sweet corn um, and I think peas. I don't know about peas, but yeah, definitely sweet corn because the, the sweetness is determined by the endosperm, which is a product of the cross-pollination. Mm -hmm. It's not just the embryo, it's the endosperm tube that is a result of a pollination. I'd like to try that. I'd like to try that to, to grade the, the bell peppers from a distance from the hot. That'd be fun. I and I, I also think it'd be a, go like ahead. with a taste test, but also with a Scoville meter, because I wonder if like just seeing hot peppers, like makes you, you know, sometimes like your, your other senses can affect your sense of taste too. So to do like a really, really like scientific measurement with a meter that is not sensing anything else in contrast, that could be interesting. Do Scoville meter, meters exist? I think, huh? Do we have one? Wow. We, I'm, I'm just doing some tests now on how accurate it is. It's made by a company out of Norway. Um, and they say most of its customers are uh, hot sauce manufacturers that just want an idea of how, of um, if, if their hot sauce is kind of within specs. Um, hmm. it's, a lot, it's a lot faster than uh, sending it off to a lab for HPLC analysis. Uh, and it may not necessarily be more accurate, but um, so for example, in the first, in the, some of the first tests that I've done with it are, our serrano peppers are coming back with similar heat to some of our jalapenos, um, which the serranos should be hotter, but we'll see. I'm, I am going to send some off for uh, validation with HPLC too. So we'll see. It's, it uses little test strips. It's kind of like a diabetes meter, but um, yeah. <laughs> the company is uh, uh, Zimmer and Peacock. They make a little test meter. That was part of our grant. We don't have enough money to afford it, but. <laughs> All right. So it looks like we don't have any other questions. Um, are there any like final thoughts you want to leave us with about growing hot peppers in the Midwest? I, th I think um, if you know anybody who knows the, the Hungarian language, team up with them and try to pour through as much as you can about the seeds that are sold and the practices that are used in Hungary because they used to be the world leader in paprika production, which is a dried added value pepper. And it's on like the 44th parallel, which is basically Michigan's upper peninsula and Minnesota. They've got a similar season. However, the Gulf stream benefits them in a way that it doesn't benefit us. Um, so their season is actually longer and sunnier than what we have here. But on the whole, they still have a harsh winter. It's not like it's Arizona there. Um, they are not the world leader in paprika production anymore because it can be done cheaper where it is arid and where labor is cheaper. And so they've kind of lost their mantle. But when it comes to locally produced stuff, I think that could be a great place to be, to be looking to for examples of how it can be done. Yeah. All right. Well, I think, do you have anything to add? I don't really. Well, thank you both. Thank, yeah, thank you, you to those of us who joined. 
And hopefully we will see many of you next week. Thanks. Thank you. Great week. Are you all ready for some bonus content? Well, here it is. This is Katie getting her audio set up before we started. Have a good one. Let's see if Katie sounds any clearer now. Now, and she's muted. I don't know what's going on. That sounds better than before to me. Yeah, I just have to like talk really loud. (laughs) Maybe. Where's the mic? Where's the mic on that computer? I have no idea. Start tapping. (laughs) Tap like this. Like. Weird. I'm assuming it's probably. Oh yeah, there it was. It's like to your left somewhere. Yeah, it's right over there. Okay, so it's the middle of the screen. Like, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not like right now. I'm not usually in the office, and so it's like connected to like I'm not usually on my laptop like I am today. So, okay, I guess we gotta start.